Do we really believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return to this earth to bring a final full stop to human history? Do we really believe that? Good, because I do. I believe it with all my heart. And this morning, I want to think about what the Bible really says about the coming of the Lord. And we're going to have a very, very um, whistle-stop tour, a quick whistle-stop tour of 2 Peter 3, 1 to 13. So if you've got the Bible open in front of you, it will really help. Now, first of all, in verse 1, Peter reminds his readers of why he's written them both letters. He says, I've written both of these letters as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. And when someone talks about stimulating wholesome thinking somewhere in the background, there must be some unwholesome thinking lurking to be avoided. What is the unwholesome thinking? Well, the unwholesome thinking is the barefaced denial that Jesus is actually going to come back. And if you think that's a modern reaction, if you think that's something of the 20th and 21st centuries alone, realize it was being said in the first century. That is precisely what he is, he, he is confronting here in uh, 2 Peter 3. And in verse 2, he gives two impeccable authorities for believing that Jesus will return. He says, I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This isn't something he's invented. This is something which he has from Christ himself. Now, in the next five verses, and I'm sorry we're going so quickly, but I, I want to get to the real guts of it. In the, in the next five verses, Peter gives four reasons why people doubt that Jesus will come back. So let's have a look at them. Verse 3 for, 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 um, to begin. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing, following their own evil desires. In other words, people reject what God has said in favor of what they think is going to happen. It's a very characteristically human reaction. Oh, I know what God has said, but I think. And second, in verse 4, they apply human logic to a divine situation. They say, where is this coming, he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has done since the beginning of creation. Again, a very human, humanly characteristic reaction. They apply human logic to a divine situation. And then they forget that God has a purpose in mind for mankind and for the whole of creation. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 21, Paul speaks of the day when Creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Do you think that God would begin this great project of creation without an end in view? Our friends from the uh, Worthing Homelessness Project have come along and they've spoken about the way in which the project has grown, in which a tremendous amount of administration, skill and training is used. Now, that project quite clearly has the anointing of God. 
And that, that's really encouraging. But you see, they're human beings, aren't they? Like us. Now, if, if, if they can start something and pursue it and build it up, they've got an end in view, haven't they? They were telling us about that, that lassie who, who was assaulted on the beach and how in her life they had a plan to put her first into accommodation and, and then gradually to, 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 to draw her back into the community. And that purpose has been fulfilled. Now, did you really think that the creator of the universe hasn't got an end in view, that he hasn't got a purpose that he's going to fulfill? Excuse me, I'm gasping and I need some water. We praise God for everything, but I don't know why he gave us this wonderful bug just after we came back from Pilgrim Hall. One of these days, Lord, I'm going to ask you that question. Now, <laughs> so God has a purpose, and he is going to fulfill that purpose. And fourth, people deny the reality of the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ because they fail to see that every choice has a consequence. And the way the Bible describes that is by using the word judgment. Verse 7, by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment. That's not a very pleasant word, is it really? It sends shivers down my spine. But that is the purpose of God. He is going to judge the ungodly. For the destruction of ungodly men. Every choice we make has a consequence. Well, verses 8 and 9 point out two things about God's character. First of all, from God's perspective, time looks very different to the way it looks from our perspective. Don't forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. And second, and, and this is perhaps one of the most important elements of this whole um, passage, the fact that there seems to be a delay doesn't mean that the whole thing has been put on ice or cancelled. It means that God has an opportunity to exercise his grace. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. He is patient with you, wanting, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The grace of God is the guts of the gospel. We live by grace. We are saved by grace through faith. Without the touch of the Holy Spirit... Ephesians chapter 2 says that we are dead in transgressions and sins. Now, a dead body can't do anything. It can't make any response at all. And before we were touched by God's sovereign grace, we were quite literally dead in transgressions and sins. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. That's the guts of the gospel. Grace. And this seeming delay doesn't mean that God is slow in keeping his promise. It means that he is giving everyone an opportunity to come to repentance and faith. And we need the grace of God just as much as ungodly people 
well, people who are more ungodly than we are because very well, I'm ungodly anyway. I don't speak for you. We need the grace of God. When I was in theological college, we had a, 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 a caretaker. Now, I'm sure there are caretakers in the world who are full of the milk of human kindness, but um, Harold um, was not really full of the milk of human kindness. In fact, I'm not quite sure whether he had any at all. His um, one aim in life was to make existence very, very awkward for the students, um, uh, or at least so it seemed. And um, I think the part of his job that he enjoyed most of all was going along the bedroom corridor at half past seven in the morning, ringing an enormous handbell. Anyway, on a Sunday evening, he would put on a Salvation Army uniform and go off to the Citadel. And I said very uncharitably to a friend of mine on one occasion, hmm, that uniform rather contradicts Harold's life, doesn't it, really? Or the other way around, his life contradicts the uniform. And my friend, who was not a theological student and therefore could look at life in a sane and balanced way, um, looked at me and he said, Charles, he said, what would you be like if it weren't for the grace of God? How much we need the grace of God. We live by grace. Now verse 10 needs careful explanation. <laughs> but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything in it will be laid bare. It's very easy if we look at the second coming in simple terms to misunderstand what God is really saying. You see, Peter is telling us two things here. First of all, he's telling us that Jesus will come at a moment we least expect. I don't know whether you were, can remember the old chorus, coming certainly, coming soon, coming suddenly, night or noon. He's going to come at a moment we least expect. And second, when he comes, life as we know it now will give way to something totally different because the material world will be discarded as you would screw up a piece of waste paper and throw it in the bin. And we have to understand that the categories in which we, we, we kind of make sense of life now won't apply then. Too often, earnest Christians have made mistakes by tying their hopes too tightly to the world as we know it now. For instance, the case of Mr. Ernest Digweed. Do you know Mr. Ernest Digweed? Let me tell you about Mr. Digweed. He died in 1976, and it was reported in the Times of January the 21st, 1977, that he'd left the whole of his estate, £26,107, in trust to be paid to Jesus Christ at his second coming. The will states that the whole estate should be invested for 80 years, and if during that time the Lord Jesus Christ shall come to reign on earth, then the public trustees, upon obtaining proof that shall satisfy them of his identity, shall pay to the Lord Jesus all the property which they hold on his behalf. It states further that if he has not returned within 80 years, the whole of the estate will go to the inland revenue. Now, Stephen Travis, writing in his book, I Believe in the Second Coming, and if you want to understand the Second Coming, that's the book to read. I Believe in the Second Coming asks these questions. Will money be of any relevance when Jesus comes? And how will the public trustees establish his identity? Or 
will his coming be such an earth-shattering event so as to render quite bizarre the suggestion that anyone would need proof of his identity? Do you see what I mean? If we try and categorize the Lord's return in terms of the world as we know it, we're going to get a totally skewed perspective. Now, the last three verses give an even greater emphasis to this. Verse 11, we should live godly lives because Christ's coming will bring about the destruction of the material things. Verse 12, we must remember that above all, when he comes, there will be a new creation. Verse 13, in keeping with his promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. Um, Harry, I'm sorry to ask you to do this. Would you go and warn the children that I'm on the last lap and that um, they're just about to come back? Bless you. Thank you. So let me summarize what I've said under two headings. There are mistakes which we must avoid. There are promises which will be kept. There are two mistakes. First of all, don't use human logic to solve a divine problem. You may think that because the promise of Christ's coming was made thousands of years ago and hasn't yet been fulfilled, it will never be fulfilled. But in fact, it will be. Welcome. Welcome. They must have been waiting. And secondly, don't tie your hopes too tightly to the world as we know it now. And... There are just three promises that we find in this passage. First of all, Jesus will return. Second, the choices we make now are of crucial significance. And thirdly, his coming will herald both an end and a new beginning. This sad and cruel world will give way to what verse 13 calls the home of righteousness. God's purpose will at last be complete. Well, did you have a good time in junior church?